You can turn to Exodus 25. You know, listening to that testimony, <clears throat> I really appreciate how, even though I never got to meet him, uh, two things when I came here, uh, which was only a few months after Howie's death. One, I was absolutely intimidated, to be honest with you, to follow up with Howie uh, because of who he was. And number two, I was um, scared to death I was going to mess up what uh, had gone on through Howie. And so I wish I'd been able to meet him. He uh, just sounded like a wonderful, wonderful person. And this church is what it is because of the foundation that was laid by the elders and, and Howie being the, 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 the elder that was leading that group. And so I really appreciate him. I, I see Debbie back there, and I know you miss him dearly. And uh, I'm, even though I never met him, I'm thankful for your husband. I want you to know that. So. We are in Exodus 25, and um, we are in a, I, I think I've said this every week, but I'm just going to say it again, a rich, rich section of Scripture. And I'm just going to have to jump into it, the, the impact of, of the truths today. I, I can't even communicate. I, I was sitting there in the last song thinking, how on earth? does a man communicate the glories of God? It's only done through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? One of the gracious acts of God is that he chose to dwell with his people. Think of that. The burning one, the holy one, the awesome God who created all things chose to dwell with his people. And not only that, he chose to be deeply involved and invested in their lives. And his presence is both reassuring and it also brings holy fear. One, one way to view Exodus, if you want to look at the, the book of Exodus, the first 20 chapters, roughly, are describing God bringing his people out of bondage. And then the next 20 chapters of Exodus are God preparing to dwell with his people. And that's what we're going to see. We already started to see last week. Today, we're going to get into the tabernacle. And there's two kinds of people when you start talking about the tabernacle. There's the ones who go, yes. And then there are the others who go, oh, no, how boring is this going to be? Each part of the tabernacle and the furnishings point to Christ. And they have their fulfillment in Christ, and so this is so important. There's... There's no need to resort to speculation, conjecture, or fanciful interpretations because the New Testament clearly reveals how Christ fulfills the tabernacle and the temple in all the furnishings. And so before we read our passage, I want to give you two principles of interpretation that will help you not only to interpret the tabernacle, but to interpret the Old Testament. The first one is to use the New Testament as the uh, key to interpret the Old. Use the New Testament to interpret the Old. Many people flip that around, and that's wrong. For example, the book of Hebrews calls the tabernacle a sanctuary that is a copy of heavenly things. The tabernacle is a copy of heavenly things. It calls the, the book of Hebrews calls the tabernacle an illustration 
in Hebrews 9.9. Yeah, uh, and it shows an illustration of a greater, more perfect tabernacle, Hebrews 9.11. And so to make sure that we understand what it's supposed to illustrate, Hebrews goes on to explain how the tabernacle is connected to Christ, especially the access to God that we now have through the sacrificial blood. And so we use uh, Scripture to interpret Scripture, um, allowing the Bible to explain its own illustrations. The second principle is study the way a detail is used in its original context. In other words, if something has a, a symbolic function in the Old Testament, then in all likelihood it is connected to the Bible's main story of salvation. And it's intended to point us to Christ. However, if something doesn't have a spiritual meaning in the Old Testament context, we should be very careful not to give it one. I'm going to give you an illustration. There is a passage of Scripture where the Elijah left Israel and lived with the widow at Zarephath. You remember that story? And remember how he told her, feed me and then feed yourself? And she said, well, you make me laugh. I'm, I'm adding to Scripture a little bit here. We don't have any food. We got enough for one meal and we're going to die. And he said, well, feed me first anyway. And they did. And the Bible says that the flour and the oil did not go away, right? I heard a pastor preach a message one time all about the Holy Spirit, how that that oil is the Holy Spirit. Now, there are passages that allude to that, but that passage was not at all about the Holy Spirit. And so you have to be careful not to assign meaning to passages where there is no spiritual meaning. We should be careful not to make some arbitrary connection to Christ, and so we should not read into the Old Testament anything that we are not able to read out of it. So as we cover these chapters, and if you saw the, the chapters we're supposed to cover, it's 25 to 27 and 35 to 40. Have no fear, we're not going to read all those verses. Um, it provides instructions for the tabernacle, and so we're going to see in 25 to 27 that these things are arranged in order of importance from the most holy and moving away from that. From the most important moving away. And then chapters 35 to 40 describes the building of the tabernacle and it's arranged in a different order and the order is dictated by common sense or by necessity. What's the most sensical thing for us to build first? And so you see that there's a different order. With that as our introduction, let's, let's stand as we read Exodus 25, beginning in verse number 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution for ev from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, and acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Did you catch that last little phrase? Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, 
I'm asking myself, how does a man communicate the glories of God? I can't. But Lord, your Holy Spirit can. And so I pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the beauty and the connection of the tabernacle that it makes to Jesus Christ and that we will be driven to worship you for you are almighty God. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. Well, the building of the tabernacle began with a heart check. God is first and foremost concerned about the heart. Did you know that? He's concerned about your heart more than anything else. And no, I'm not talking about your ticker. I'm talking about your heart, the inner core of who you are. He asked people, the heart check is this, he asked people to contribute their resources to make a dwelling place. Bringing an offering is one of the best ways that we can do something for God. Did you know that? What is remarkable is that God is willing to receive our offerings as an act of worship. Have you ever thought how remarkable that is? That he receives our offerings as an act of worship? Everything that we have belongs to him already. And he would be well within his rights to take it back. But he doesn't take it back. Instead, he allows us to give. Giving for the Israelites and for the Christians is out of gratitude. For the Bible says, From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Literally, Moses was to collect an offering from every man whose heart moved him to take a vow. Those who felt compelled to give, something has happened in their heart and that has bound them to be generous. They, they want to be generous because of who God is. What happened to them? What caused these people to be so generous? What moved these people to give to God? The answer is that they've been saved by grace. God rescued for, uh, them from slavery. And if you remember when they left, he showered them with treasure as well. The Bible says that they plundered the Egyptians. He delivered them from their enemies. He led them through the wilderness. He provided water to drink and food to eat. He gave them his law. He showed them his glory. He had a, uh, uh, provided atonement for their sins from the blood of his covenant. And out of the rich abundance of his grace, he had done everything necessary for their salvation. And when they reflected on what God had done, their hearts swelled with gratitude and they were compelled by grace to give something back to God. If God gave us everything, then gave us salvation, then he told us that he would, he would bless us for giving to him. It should compel great generosity in us as well, shouldn't it? It should. If you're here for the first time, I know what you're thinking. Oh, here we go. This pastor's preaching on giving. They always preach on giving. No, I've never preached on giving except one other time in three years since I've been here. And that's because the text caused me to. I'm preaching on giving because that's where we are in the text. And it's wonderful to give with generosity. Jesus understood that, that God's blessing comes to those who give. And the greater, listen, this is true. The greater your generosity, the greater God's blessing is for you. Did you know that? 
Jesus makes a radical, radical statement here. He, in a passage in, in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke, Luke chapter 12, he reassures his listeners, you don't need to be anxious for your basic needs because God will provide everything they need. And he goes above and beyond that. He says, not only will God provide, let me tell you what you ought to do. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, let me say something right here from the outset. If you are in Christ, it was God's pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Isn't that wonderful? Then Jesus went on to say, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, was he speaking hypothetically here? Was he just giving a random illustration? Or was he speaking hyperbole? The answer is no, no, no. He was telling people who literally depended upon God for their daily life, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure that is in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. And then he finishes with this. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Is that radical? That is radical. But God promises. Mark it down. Put it in the bank. God will bless you if you are generous. Now let me give you uh, one condition. I am not preaching prosperity gospel here. Because I am saying God will bless you. Jesus is making it very clear the blessings are kingdom blessings. They are eternal. They're better than your 401k. They're better than your IRA. They're better than the latest stock that you bought that's, that's yielded whatever percentage it is. These are eternal blessings in, in the eternal kingdom where there is no sin, where there is no poverty. Everybody's going to be rich beyond your wildest measure. And Jesus said, give, give, give. Give it even until it hurts. Because you'll get back. If all this is true, as we know it is, then why do we spend our money on so many other things? I'm still waiting on that Corvette for my midlife crisis. <laughs> I haven't gotten it yet. It's because I'm giving so much. How's that? Does that sound? <laughs> that way I, I at least sound pious, right? It's, why, do, why do we buy everything else? Do you want to know the answer? This is true. This is true about me. It's true about you. It's because our hearts are hard. We don't believe God. Often the choice is between spending money on ourselves and using it for God. And who wins? Yeah. That, that's, that's our condition, isn't it? Am I, am I condemning you? No, I'm just telling it like it is. It's true of me. It's true of you. That's human nature. Everyone in Israel was invited to give. The important thing was for people to bring the most valuable thing that they had. Whatever that happened to be. If they had gold, they needed to bring gold. Some people didn't have very much gold, so it was up to, up to the people who had a lot to give it. Otherwise, um, 
If nobody gave gold, there wouldn't be any gold for God's tabernacle. But if all people had was, if all they had was like goat hair or olive oil, then God would accept that. He accepted your best because that was the best they had to offer. And that's what we're to do for God. We're to give him the best that we have to offer, whether it's monetarily, whether it's with our time, whether it's with our mind. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a time of prayer and Bible reading on your own? If so, that ought to be when your mind is at its best. For me, that's early in the morning. Give me past 8 o'clock, I can't even think straight. 8 o'clock at night, I'm talking about, not 8 o'clock in the morning. Okay? But morning time, I'm sharp and ready to go and excited about the day. Give God your very best. We can contribute to the, uh, to the work. We can support the work of the ministry of the local church. We can contribute to the worldwide work of missions. We can give to the poor and needy. When the offering is collected, we should do whatever we can. Now, we don't collect an offering here. I'm, I'm, I'm Baptist by upbringing. I'm used to the offering plate. We've got the, the three offering boxes back there. Uh, funny story. Uh, I've, I've heard pastors say, well, if you don't take an offering, your offering is going to go down. I haven't found that to be the case here at Providence, actually, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But um, in, in, in the Christian life, rich Christians who give large quantities of the wealth of Christian work make an extraordinary difference for Christ. This is why God has made them rich, so his servants would have the resources that they need to spread the gospel. If we have gold, we should give it, but not everybody does. We need to give God the best of what we have to offer, but poor Christians should give something equally as valuable to them. And their giving, by the way, is equally as valuable to God and His church. Did you know that? It is. When we do our giving together, we can give far more than any one person is able to give. And so whether our gifts happen to be large or small, they glorify God, who deserves the best of what we have to offer. And that was a heart check. Even before they built the tabernacle, God gave him a heart check. So how much are you willing to give to God? And then we get into the next section, verses 10 to 22 in, in Exodus 25. We start to get into the, the, the next section. I want to read some verses here. We're going to cherry pick some of the verses here. Look at verse number 10. They shall make an ark. Now this is not a boat. It's what you see up on the screen here. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Verse number 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, he hasn't told them what that is yet. He said, I'm going to tell you. Here's the testimony. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse number 18. And you shall take two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. And then verse 21 and 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in a commandment for the people of Israel. So what is going on here? Why did the ark come first? Have you ever asked that? Why didn't they talk about the, the tabernacle first, the tent? Why was it the ark? The answer is 
out of all the things that went inside the tabernacle, you start, why did he start with a piece of furniture rather than the tent itself? It's because it's the most important item in the whole tent. It was the exact place where God descended to dwell with his people, which of course was the purpose of the building. Now we know that God cannot be contained, can he? He cannot be contained, but that is the place where he chose to dwell. The Bible calls it his footstool. He's a king, and that's his footstool in in the tabernacle. The very center of God's presence was the Ark of the Covenant, which is located in the Holy of Holies, the innermost tent in the tabernacle. And by starting with the Ark, God was working from the inside out, and he's also putting first things first, beginning with the most holy place. Now, you're going to hear me use two terms, Holy of Holies, the most holy place. They're both the same thing. You, got, you know what I'm talking about when I say it, right? The Holy of Holies. The gold covering the ark was fit for a king. It was refined. The gold indicated royalty. The mercy seat was gold-lined inside and outside and on top. It had two cher- cherubim uh, guarding it. Uh, the cherubim are special angels mentioned almost a hundred times in the Old Testament. They're first mentioned in Genesis 3. Did you know that? They guard the tree of life. And this seems to show their function. Unlike some of the other angels, the cherubim are not messengers. Let me go back. These are not messengers. They're not messengers at all. They're guards. They remain in God's presence. And you know what their job is? You know what their function is? To guard access to God. That's why they guarded the tree of life. And by the way, we'll see this next week, but the, the veil that, that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies, it was embroidered with cherubim all in it because they were symbolic of them guarding that holy place. The gold, um, the, the, I'm sorry, the cherubim, were guards. They were the palace guards for the king of kings, the guardians of the sacred and the throne of attendants of Almighty. Now today, <clears throat> cherubs are usually rendered as, as chubby little <laughs> creatures with cheerful faces, aren't they? That is not at all how the Bible portrays them. Cherubim, they're serious angels. They're scary angels. Turn to Ezekiel 1. Turn to Ezekiel 1. We're going to look at verse number 5 in just a moment. This is appropriate for supernatural beings who live in the presence of a holy God. And I think it would be time, this this is appropriate for us to look at Ezekiel and just spend a little bit of time here understanding this cherubim because they're all through the tabernacle and the temple. Verse number 5. He gets a, a vision of heaven, Ezekiel does, and he says, And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. By the way, if you saw something with four faces, what would you do? All right, this is not some chubby little cherub. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's hoof. 
They sparkled like burnished bronze under their wings, on their four sides. They had human hands. I guess they had at least eight hands, maybe four hands. I don't understand what they had. They had, uh, and four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them were straightforward without turning as they went. Their wings touched each other. In other words, nobody's getting past us to get to the throne. Okay? And as, as for what likeness of their faces, each had a human face. Four had the face of a lion on the right side. Four had the face of an ox on the left side. Four had a face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Look at verse number 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like the burning coals of fire. Okay, they got faces, but they're like burning fire, these creatures. The appearance of torches moving to and fro. So literally, there's some sort of winged creature that looks like winged fire is the only thing I can figure. Can you figure this out? I don't, Ezekiel doesn't know what he's describing, by the way. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. These aren't chubby little cherubs. They're sending out lightning bolts. Verse number 14, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of the flash of lightning. Do you have any idea what he described? But would you know it if you saw it? If you saw a cherubim right now, you would know a cherubim. And they guard the throne of God. Ezekiel's vision helps us to understand the Ark of the Covenant. If heaven were to open so that we could see God on this glorious throne today, he would be seated above the cherubim. These four cherubim are below. He's above, just like on the Ark. The Ark was God's footstool. And he's above the cherubim. The psalmist said, The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Similarly, King Hezekiah prayed, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. This is one of God's holy titles. He is the one who's enthroned between the cherubim. No one else. This means that the Ark of the Covenant... Don't miss this. The Ark of the Covenant is an earthly symbol of heavenly reality. Its cover was a three-dimensional picture of a scene from heaven where God is surrounded by holy angels. The cherubim on the Ark represent the burning angels beneath God's throne. And above these uh, cherubim, whom Hebrews calls the cherubim of glory in Hebrews 9.5, was the holy presence of of God. No doubt this explains why the Bible says the cherubim lowered their gaze. And I believe even on the illustration, their gaze was lowered, looking down on the ark rather than up to God. They were bowing in the presence of God, worshiping him in reverence and awe. There were a few items that would be placed inside the ark, by the way. Remember the testimony? What was the testimony that was going to be put in the ark? God calls them the testimony. Hebrews 9, 4, we won't turn there, but just remember that. tells what was in there. It says it contained the Ten Commandments, a pot with manna, God's provision, right? 
in Aaron's rod that budded. And I wish when we get to the lampstand I had time to explain that. That is an amazing, amazing story, Aaron's rod that budded, and what it talks about or what it means about the Messiah. These served as reminders of where the Lord had brought them. But let's go on. Now we're going to step outside the Holy of Holies into the holy place where, remember, the only, in the Holy of Holies, only the, the high priest could go. Only one had access to that. The holy place the priest did had, had access to. And we're going to talk about the bread of presence. By the way, the Ark of the Covenant shows God's presence. The bread shows God's provision. Look at verse number 23 of Exodus 25. And you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its legs. Okay, I've got to stop. Something I didn't mention about the ark, that one of the instructions was, in the Ark of the Covenant, you have rings and you put rods, and it says those rods are never to be removed because no one is to touch that Ark. After that Ark was made, only one human being touched that Ark, and what happened to him? He died. Nobody's to touch it. Here, these can be removed, okay? But let's keep reading. Verse number 26, And you shall make four, four rings of gold, Fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close the frame, uh, close to the frame, I'm sorry, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense and uh, uh, flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me regularly. Now, this illustration does a habit that we know from history. They also had a pitcher with olive oil and some other stuff on that table as well. Now, God began to describe what would be placed outside the most holy place. Uh, the table, this table is called by several different names. Here, it's simply called the table. Numbers 4 calls it the table of presence. Leviticus calls it a table of pure gold. The longest name, by the way, if you want to know some trivia, is found in 1 Kings where it's called the golden table for the bread of presence. So whatever you want to call it, that's fine. But the table was not as important as what it held. And what it held was 12 loaves of bread symbolizing God's um, people Israel. There was one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the bread was a reminder of several things. One, that every tribe played a role in God's family. That the bread stayed on the table all the time, and it was replaced once a week with fresh bread, was a, per, uh, a perpetual reminder of God's providential care. Constantly reminding them that God cared, He, he was going to provide the showbread symbolized God's constant awareness of their daily needs. And God saw what they needed and he provided. Their needs were always on God's mind. Leviticus 24.8, Moses said this, by the way, Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly 
it's, is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And all through long centuries, God provided what he promised, daily bread, week by week, month by month, year by year, century by century, the bread of presence was a sign of God's providence. There was something else about the bread of presence. It symbolized God's fellowship with his people. At the end of every week, do you know what the priest did at the end of the week? At the end of the week, the, the priest took the bread and they ate it in God's presence. It was, it was a symbol of, uh, of uh, God's fellowship with them. They placed the new bread on the table and eat the old bread in God's presence. And it was required that they eat that bread in the tabernacle grounds, temple grounds later on. <clears throat> All week long, the bread was in God's presence, symbolizing his fellowship with his people. It stood as a perpetual thank offering to God for the blessings of his providence. And the priests ate it. They were eating in the presence of God. God still provides for his people today, doesn't he? The lesson we learn from the bread of presence is practical as it is simple. And here it is. You ready? God knows what we need and can be trusted to provide it. I can't say it any differently or any better than that, right? This is one of the great themes of the Bible and one of the great truths of the Christian life. Whatever we need, God will provide. Eventually, most Christians learn to trust God for their daily needs. As we go through life, we've, we've all had these similar experiences, haven't we, of God's providing care for us. God uses our times of need to teach us that we can count on Him to provide. And it happens again and again and again. We need shelter. God provides a home. We need work. God provides a job. We need food. God provides a meal. Even if we're not very good at inductive reasoning, eventually we figure out that God can always be trusted to provide whatever we need. I could have you guys come up one after another and give evidence and testimony to what God has provided for your life. Am I right? I am absolutely right. While some Christians still need to learn that, our, our, um, that, that God will provide, our real need is for God himself. And that's what the bread of presence teaches. We, our deepest need is to have fellowship with the living God. More than needing God to feed us, we need, listen, to feed on God. And Jesus said as much in the feeding of the 5,000. In, in John chapter 6, we have the account of the feeding of 5,000. They didn't understand that he was a true manna from God. They didn't understand that his miracle feeding pointed to a greater truth that they needed to feed on him. And so he told them that. John chapter 6, in verse 32, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he. It's a person. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, who gives life from the world. Dear believer, do you want life? 
Do you want Christian life? Do you want what many people call the abundant Christian life? Let me tell you how you get it. You feed on God. You turn your desires to God and His glory. You learn about God. You learn about Him in Scripture. You feed on God and He satisfies. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The times of my life when I am most satisfied is when I'm most meditating on him and his word. In verse number 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. Let me ask you a question, dear person today. Do you feed on God? Are you drawing spiritual nourishment from His Word? Do you have a growing appetite for spending time alone with God in prayer? God's not some kind of cosmic vending machine, is He? Just pull the lever and something pops out, a job or a car or whatever He's trying to teach us. No, our relationship with God is need-based. And our needs are not merely physical, they're spiritual. They're not merely temporal, but they're eternal. So what we need is not only for God to do this or to do that, but for Him to be our God, for us to have relationship with Him, for us to know Him in all His power. And that is something we will need long after all of our material needs have been met. We still need God the way a beggar needs bread. He is food for our soul, for our soul. And the only time that our souls will be completely satisfied is when we cross over into eternity. Here we are satisfied with a satisfaction that's greater than any Corvette that I mentioned earlier in the, in the, in the sermon or any other thing. Nothing can satisfy us like God can. Dear believer, I'll ask you one more time, are you feeding on God? Well, then there's the golden lampstand. Let's begin reading in verse number 31. This is a complicated description. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out on one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out on the other, three cups made like an almond blossoms, each calyx and a flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out from the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece, with it under each pair of six branches going out from the lampstand. And the calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. And uh, uh, the whole of it is a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And you shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. That's 75 pounds of pure gold. What's the market value of gold right now? 
Thank you. I didn't even know. I had no clue. Now, multiply that by 16 ounces and then multiply that by 75. You'll find out the value in gold of this thing. Verse number 40. And see to it that you make them after the pattern for them which was being shown to you on the mountain. The golden lampstand, and you'll see this in an illustration next week if you haven't already seen it in your Bibles, your study Bibles. The golden lampstand was positioned in the holy place directly across from the table. One's on one side, one's on the other. It was handcrafted from 75 pounds of pure gold. We call it a menorah, don't we? We know what it is, a lampstand. Understand that this menorah was not assembled. It was made from a single piece of solid gold. The lampstand was ornate. It wasn't pounded roughly into shape, but it was carefully crafted and sculpted and elaborately festooned with flowers. Each had three golden decorations of almond buds, blossoms, and fruit. You see all three stages in the lampstand. I wish I had time to talk about almonds. They are amazing, the almond tree. In Jeremiah, it talks about it, uh, the almond tree and what the symbol is. It is uh, astounding, breathtaking is all I can say. I took out a whole page of my sermon because I felt like the sermon was going to be too long to describe all of this. The golden lampstand had an obvious practical function was to shed light on the tabernacle's interior. Every home needs light. God's holy dwelling place is no exception. I'll get into this more in the text next week when we talk about the tabernacle as a whole. But the tabernacle represented the Garden of Eden. Let me say it one more time. The tabernacle represented the Garden of Eden. The Jews believed that the tabernacle represented the cosmos, the universe. I believe they're right, by the way. The lampstand stood for life because it was made in the shape of a tree, a stylized tree. The central shaft formed the trunk from which the branches came out covered with beautiful buds, blossoms, and fruit. This botanical motif was not merely decorative, it was symbolic. As the lampstand branched out, it was budding and blooming and ripening with fruit. You, you see it in the illustrations. As the lampstand in other words, the three stages of the life cycle of the tree are occurring simultaneously. This made the lampstand a potent symbol of God, the life giver. The golden lampstand was a stylized tree of life. Remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? It was an echo from Eden that, that the lampstand was a metaphor for the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden means that God gives life to his people. When God first planted Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them the tree of life, the Bible said. But once they fell into sin, our first parents were cut off from the tree of life by what? Cherubim, remember? Not the chubby kind. The wages of their sin was death, but all was not lost because God had a plan for giving his people new life, like almond blossoms in the springtime. By the way, I'll say this. Almond trees in Israel bloom in January when everything is dead. I've got to say this. The, 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 the Bible calls the almond tree the watching tree. 
And the, the Jews believed that the almond tree was watching for the Messiah. And there's a, there's a beautiful, in Scripture, you can see how they get it. It's very clear how they get that belief. i got to move on because I'll get deep into a rabbit hole. The deeper meaning of the lampstand is that God himself is a light. There is no darkness where God is. Scripture says God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. The lamp in the tabernacle showed that as the people approached God, they were coming into the light. God gives light to his people. Do you want to have light in your life? Know God. Know him better. Know him more. Glory in God. Approach him in prayer. Approach him in your Bible reading. And you will have light. And that light, by the way, symbolizes the knowledge of God, the radiance glories of God. The light is where God is. He is our light and our salvation, Psalm 27. There were seven lights on the lampstand. The seven, by the way, is the number of completion, isn't it? It's complete. Perfection would be another way of saying it. The lampstand pointed to Christ. It pointed to Christ. He is the life. He is the light. The Bible says that everyone who believes on him may have eternal life. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is also the light. Do you remember Isaiah 9? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And if Jesus is the life of God and the light of the world, then anyone who does not have a personal saving relationship with him is in darkness in death. He's light in life. Anybody who's not in him is in darkness and death. The light and life symbolized by the golden lampstand are now embodied in Jesus Christ, God's true tabernacle. Life and light he gives are eternal. The end of Revelation promises that there is a tree of life growing in heaven. That everyone who believes in Jesus has a, re- a right to eat from it and live forever. Think, think. Jesus said, I am the bread. Eat my flesh. You get to Revelation, which is symbolic. So much of it's apocalyptic. You're eating of the tree of life. What do you think it symbolizes? Feasting on God. But the one thing heaven does not have and does not need is a lampstand. Because the Bible says the heavenly city does not need sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives us light and the Lamb is the lamp. Are you in the light? Do you have life? Jesus Christ is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He is the lamp of heaven. So when the priest entered the holy place to trim the lampstand, the shining tree of lights, they were glimpsing the glorious destiny of the children of God. Remember the tabernacle, the Bible says, is an illustration of the heavenlies. And in heaven is Jesus Christ, the lamp the life, the tree of life, and the light of God. He is the lamp of heaven. Do you know Jesus? He made a way 
for you to know him and to go, know God and to go to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Dear person sitting here today, do you know the Father? Have you come to the Father through Jesus Christ? There's no more important thing that you do or you know than Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the, the symbolism in the tabernacle. So much I had to just skip over today. But Lord, I, I think our hearts are all drawn to worship you, to glory in you, to awe in the word revealed in Scripture. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll draw us in glorious worship of you. And I also pray for anyone here who does not know you. Maybe they're sitting here today, Lord, and they're, they're bored by this. I ask that you'll open their eyes and their ears and their heart to see and hear and understand not only the greatness of God, but their need of salvation. And that today, today will be their day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray.